Morris Hill, you can have a seat. It's good to see all of you this morning. I don't know if you know this, but as Mark was saying, you, you wrote your prayers down, but there are a number of different people that pray for you throughout the week. The, we have a, a group of people that uh, will take your, your prayer requests. We have elders that will take your prayer requests. They'll be praying for you throughout the week, specifically for whatever that you wrote down or the things that you share with them. We have others who gather during the middle of the week specifically to pray for you and to pray for your needs. We have a group of people that volunteer to set these chairs out every week and on Saturday night they pray over these chairs. They pray specifically for you. It's pretty amazing the number of people that are praying for you. You didn't even know that. It's encouraging. It's uplifting. And they're pleading before God for you to know his grace, for you to to have his peace. They're praying all of these different things. This morning in the text, we're going to get to see another person interceding on behalf of a people. We're going to get to see Moses praying on behalf of his people. But better than Moses and better than all of these that pray for you and I, we're going to see that Moses points us to Jesus, the great, true, and better high priest who intercedes on our behalf at the right hand of the Father for us. That's what we're going to learn this morning. As we dive into this text, before we get into the nuance of the text, we're in Exodus chapter 32, in verses 11 down to 35. It's a big chunk of text. You could really probably teach this in four or five weeks, and of course, we tried to take this on in one. But this text, if you divide it up, you miss some of the nuance of the text. There's something that's happening in this text. We saw last week that Israel melts this gold, these gold earrings, they make a golden calf, and really what there's a couple of themes that sit behind this text. This is Israel's fall. This is a repetition for us to see the repetition of Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. Genesis chapter 1, God creates. Genesis chapter 2, God rests. And then Genesis chapter 3, man rebels. What have we had in the text the last couple of weeks? God has called his people to create, to make. Then he invited them to rest. And now what have they done in chapter 32? They have rebelled. What's amazing is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, they are offered, man is offered a redeemer. One who will intercede, mediate the, God, the presence of God. What does Israel receive in our text today in verse 11 to 35 but a mediator? An intercessor. One who will intercede between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. What are we learning in this text? That sin, though Israel has been rescued, sin still remains in the people. And what do they desperately need? What do you and I desperately need? We need a mediator. We need one to intercede on our behalf. One to mediate the holy presence of God between our sinful hearts and His holiness. And what do they receive in the text? This is amazing. They receive exactly that. They receive Moses, the mediator. There's really three acts to the text. This is why you could break it up if we wanted to, but it's important for us to keep it together. There's Moses on top of the mountain standing before God, interceding for the people. And then there's Moses who comes down the mountain, and he comes into the sinful lives of his people. And he proclaims the truth of God's holiness. And then what does he do? He goes back up the mountain and he offers himself as a substitute in verse 32. Do you see it? Do you hear it? One who descends into the sinful valley of our lives and one who goes back up 
atoning for our sins, offering himself as a substitute, Moses is pointing us to Jesus. And so as we look at what Moses does, we need to hear also who he's pointing us to. He's pointing us to Jesus and his acts and his life. So we're going to see Moses the priest this morning, Moses the prophet, and Moses the sacrificial, strong and sacrificial king. And all the while, we need to remember he's pointing us to Jesus, the priest, Jesus, the true and better prophet, Jesus, the true and better sacrificial king. Let's look first at Moses, the priest, and let's see how he intercedes on behalf of his people. In, in verses 1 to 9, last week, we saw that the people sin, they construct a golden calf, they, they break the first and the second commandments, they break their own word that we will do everything that you've told us to do, they break the covenant, they're mixing, at best, they're mixing uh, a different God, a foreign God with their God. At worst, they are substituting a new God for their God entirely. And in verse 10, we saw the strong words that God speaks to Moses. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. Speaking of Moses, Deuteronomy 9.14 tells us, gives us a little bit more nuance to that text. 9.14, telling the story again, God says, let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name. That's going to be an important phrase for us this morning. Blot out their name. Blot them out from under heaven because of their sin. And I will make of you, Moses, a nation mightier and greater than they. In other words, what God is announcing is judgment is coming. Judgment is impending. And unless you, Moses, this is the rhetorical wordplay that happens in 10, unless you, Moses, act as their intercessor, act as their mediator, unless you intercede, Moses, they will be punished. They will be blotted out. I will destroy this people and I will start over with you. Judgment is coming. Without a mediator, these people will die. What will Moses do? Will Moses lower himself? Will Moses humble himself? Will, will, will Moses deny his own name and his own fame and his own glory? Or will Moses take up this opportunity to make a name of himself, an opportunity to glory in himself? Which will Moses do? And what do we see in the text? Verse 11, Moses immediately, it says, implores Yahweh. That word is so rich. He implores Yahweh. He doesn't just pray. He doesn't just say, thoughts and prayers with you, Israel. <laughs> he doesn't just say, he doesn't just, eh, these people sin, Lord, bless their hearts. He doesn't say that. He implores. It means he begs God. He pleads with God. The word literally means he is weakened in his prayer before God. He's weak need before God. He can't even stand. He, he's moved to sickness. He can't even fathom what they have done, and he can't even fathom God and his holiness being poured out on these people. He is moved to sickness, moved to weakness. He's begging God to come and to do something different. In fact, the Later in the text, we're going to see again that, God, that Moses goes back up to God. And in Deuteronomy, we'll learn when he goes back up to God, he, he goes up for 40 more days and 40 more nights, and he fasts. He denies himself food. He denies himself 
the, the luxuries of life, he goes back up before God. So this weakness, this imploring is, is this whole scene, but it's especially that. He's before God, weak, crying out, pleading that God would come and be gracious and merciful to his people. That's what this word means. Listen to what he prays. He prays two big things. He prays God's goodness for his people, God's goodness towards his people, and God's faithfulness towards his people. First, God's goodness, verse 11 and 12. O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt? With great power and with, great, with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did Yahweh bring them out? To kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn, Moses says, from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. That phrase, with evil intent, is important. What, what Moses is praying, what Moses is interceding, begging, pleading before God, is do not feed into the narrative, Lord, that the Egyptians have, that you're an evil God. Do not let them speak evil of you, O Lord. Don't let them dare open their mouths and ever think for a second that you're not a good and gracious God. Lord, that's not who you are. Yahweh, you are a good God. As we just sang, your goodness pursues us. You are a great, good, faithful, gracious God. That's who you are. Do not let anyone speak evil of your name. Is this not what happens? Is this not how, when we see suffering and affliction in the world, is this not what many use as an excuse for coming to God? Look, he's an uncaring God. Look, he's an evil God. Look, he's not good. Look, he doesn't care about us. He doesn't know our needs. Is that not the root of the temptation in the garden? Those are the accusations against God to Adam and Eve. He doesn't know your name. He doesn't care about you. He doesn't want the best for you. He's hiding something. And Moses prays exactly opposite of that. No, you are a good God. This is who you are. He's praying God's character. He's praying God's nature. He's praying God's goodness. This is what he's praying. Notice he doesn't make any excuses for their sins. He doesn't say, Lord, it was just a mistake. He doesn't make any excuses for their sins. He doesn't say, turn a blind eye to this. The implication is, no, they are sinful. They have rebelled. They do deserve judgment and justice. They do deserve your holiness and wrath. But pour out your grace, please, Lord. You are a gracious God. This is who you are. You're a God who heard the cry of your people. You're a God who came to the rescue, and the text says he scooped them up and held them close to his chest. That's who you are. You're a loving father. Be a loving father to this people. The stiff-necked, rebellious people that do deserve judgment. This is what Moses is praying. You're a good and glorious God. What's amazing is while we're learning what Moses does, we're learning about how to intercede on behalf of other people. Is this how you pray? Is this how I pray for the salvation and the repentance of family and friends and the world? Is this what we pray? Lord, we all deserve judgment. We all deserve your wrath. We all stand as sinners before you. Oh God, please be gracious to me. Please be gracious to them. Please come and be the good God that you are. Relent. Is that how we pray? 
This is how Moses is praying. Moses also pleads God's faithfulness, particularly to his covenant, to his promises. This is especially powerful when we understand the whole context. Verse 7, and, verse seven to 10, remember, in verse 7, listen to what God says. God said, I have seen, to Moses, I have seen your people whom you brought up out of Egypt. And then in verse 10, he says, if you don't, essentially, if you don't intercede on their behalf, I will blot them out and start over with you. Moses, I've seen their stiff-neckedness. I've seen their sins. I've seen their, the judgment that they deserve. And then essentially in 10, he invites Moses to intercede, invites him into his role. And, and, and if you do not intercede, if there is no mediator between me and them, they will be crushed. What will Moses do? What a choice. What is Moses going to do? What a decision Moses had to face. In order to rescue God's people, Moses had to humble himself, had to lower his name and lower his fame and, and turn away from the opportunity to glory in his own accomplishments and have his name be in the marquee. And what does he do? Where Aaron failed, Moses surpassed him. Moses humbled himself. Listen to what Moses prays. Notice verse 11. You remember in verse 10, verse 7, it says, God says to Moses, I've seen your people who you brought up out of Egypt. It, and Moses says in verse 11, Oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you brought out of heaven? This is not a, a, a dodge. Like God and Moses are not trying to be like parents with their, that's your child. <laughs> and the other one said, No, 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 that's your child. That's not what's happening here. They're not arguing over, I don't want responsibility for them. God is announcing that there's a, a, a gap, a breach between he and them. When he says it in verse 7, your people, he's, he's acknowledging they are sinful. And when Moses says back to God, they are your people, he is saying back, yes, they are sinful, but the, you, these are the people you entered into a relationship with. These are the people, while they were yet sinners, you came to rescue them. While they were in Egypt in bondage to slavery and sin, you came to rescue them. This, this is the people that you entered into a covenant with. These are the people that, that you have rescued. He's not, Moses is not praying his fame, his name, his glory. He's praying God's. And it gets even more explicit in verse 13. Remember the opportunity here is, Moses, I, leave me alone, let me alone, that I might blot them out, and I will start over with you. And Moses says, do not start over with me. Rem don't remember me. What does he say in verse 13? Remember Abraham. Isaac and Jacob. In other words, remember the covenant that you entered into in Genesis chapter 12 with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the people of Israel. Remember them. Remember your promise, God. Remember your covenant. Not me. These people deserve judgment, but please show them your goodness and grace. These, they deserve to be cut off, but please remain true to your word, your covenant, and your nature. And what happens? Verse 14. And the Lord relents the Lord relents now this is a, a difficult word this is where you could go and, and add a, a fifth sermon if we wanted to and chase a long rabbit here because this word is it, difficult some of you if you look at your translations New, New American Standard Version um, the, the King James it says that the, the Lord changed his mind in the New American in, in the King James it says the Lord repented 
But what do we do with that word? Because there are dozens of other scriptures in the, in, the, in the Bible that tell us that God is an unchanging God. Numbers chapter 23 verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he, has he said and will he not do or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? 1 Samuel 15, 29, Malachi 3, 6, James 1, 17, Psalm 33, 11, Psalm 102, 25 to 27. Shall I go on? All of these verses tell us that God is an unchanging God, and yet we're here in this text, and it says he relented, and some translations say he changed his mind. I think that that changed his mind needs to be nuanced just a little bit. And I think relenting is a better word for us to understand what's happening. On the one hand, God is an absolutely unchanging God in his character, nature, purposes, and promises. He is unchanging in who he is. But relent means this is what he's doing here is pronouncing, announcing judgment, and he's announcing an invitation to repent that he might be true to his character, nature, purposes, and promises. God is a relenting God. He is a gracious God. He is a good God. So what we're learning here is that when he relents, he is showing what a better way of translating this, and you can translate this word this way, he is showing pity. He is showing compassion. He's showing mercy for a sinful people. Praise God for this text. On the one hand, if we think that God is changing in his character, nature, purpose, and promise, then that means he's not as good as he says he is. If he can change, then he can improve. That means he's not as good as he says he is. On the, on the flip side of that, if, if he can change, then he can change also for the worse. And we, that's terrifying. Think about that for a second. That means we never know who we're dealing with. We never know how bad things could actually get. If God is a changing God in his character, nature, purposes, and promises, that's a terrifying proposition. But we have a God who is I am. Who I was, I am, and I will be. Who is unchanging. He is not like us. Psalm 102 talks about the, the earth changing, that it It'll be thrown off like a robe. It's like a garment that wears out. But God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is an unchanging God. So what we have here in this text is not a, a change of who he is. It's a change in how he deals with us. He is relenting. He is gracious. He is kind. He is merciful. This is exactly, if you remember the story of Jonah, this is exactly what irritated Jonah. Remember, Jonah was told to, as a prophet to go to Nineveh and to proclaim the goodness of God, the grace of God. Forty days and I will destroy Nineveh. Implied is repent and I will relent. And Jonah says, Jonah goes to Tarshish because he doesn't want to proclaim that message precisely because he knows that's who God is. In Jonah chapter 4 verse 2 it says, after Nineveh repents and God relents, Jonah says, is this not what I said? Is this not who I knew you to be, a relenting God? You are such a gracious God, I knew that you would do this. Do you hear the complaint? Jonah is such a reluctant prophet. It's so mind-blowing. He doesn't want to proclaim the message because he knows God's going to be gracious and kind. Why? 
Because that's who he is. And on this case, in this case, what we have here is Moses knows that. And he's pleading that. And he's praying that. You are a good and gracious God. Psalm 106.45 tells us, gives us an indication of everything that we've just said here. Psalm 106.45. For their sake, God, he's talking about this scene. For their sake, God, Yahweh, remembered his covenant and relented according to his steadfast love. Do you, do you know what steadfast love means? It's, it's the word has said. It means his covenant faithfulness. In other words, God relented according to his character. You and I, he, he is a good and gracious God, but in Genesis chapter 3, we rebelled against him. We lifted our fists. We lifted our weapons. We said, we don't need you. We don't want you. And we elicited his wrath. We stood and stomped all over his good, gracious faithfulness and his holiness, and now his holiness and his wrath are justly being poured out on sinners. And yet he calls us to repent and offers us grace. This is what he's, Moses is praying here. So what? What, what? what do we make of this? Israel's story is our story. Israel gets the failure of Aaron, and then they ultimately get the better priest in Moses who pleads before God, praying their name. But Moses points us to our true and better high priest, Jesus. Jesus is the great high priest, as the writer of Hebrews says. He is our great high priest. He goes in beyond the, the tabernacle, holy of holies, the little physical structure, into the very presence of the holy God. He stands, the scriptures tell us, Romans chapter 8, verse 34, he stands at the right hand of God Almighty. And do you know what he's doing there? If you are in Christ Jesus, he's presenting your name in the ear of God. Your name, my name, is on the mouth, the lips of Jesus, and in the ear of God. And you know what Jesus is saying? That one is your son. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, he lives to intercede. He lives to do this. This is what he came to do. This is what he loves to do. He loves to plead your name into the ear of God. And the only way he can do that is because he is our great high priest who stands in the gap, who stands in the midst. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, he is our advocate, our great advocate. You know the courtroom scene. You have a lawyer, you have an advocate, and what does an advocate do? He pleads the case of the, of the person he's representing to the judge. He's pleading our case, but not our righteousness, his righteousness on our behalf. We could go on and on. There's a scene in Zechariah chapter 3 that's just beautiful where, where Zechariah has a vision. He sees Joshua the high priest standing before God. And right next to, at Joshua's right hand, is Satan. And what is Satan doing there? He's accusing Joshua. Do you know the name Satan means accuser? That's what he does. He's standing at the right hand of Joshua saying, you are such a wretch. You are such a foul failure. You are such a terrible sinner. And you know what it says in Zechariah chapter 3? The angel of the Lord, which always represents Jesus, stands there and silences Satan. Silences him. Rebukes him. Says, be quiet. Speak no more. And what is the, the angel of the Lord say, 
give Joshua, who's covered in filthy rags according to the text, give him new, spotless, clean, righteous rags. Righteous clothes. This is what Jesus does on our behalf. Man, we could go on for weeks on that. Point two, Jesus, Moses, the prophet. So Moses comes as a priest, Moses comes as a prophet, and look what he does. Look at how he confronts the people. Moses stands before God acting as a priest, pleading on their behalf, interceding, mediating the presence of God, but now he goes down the mountain. Verse 15, then Moses turned and he went down from the mountain, down from the presence of God into the, the, the sin and the, the sinful valley of these people's lives. He goes into their midst. And as they're going down, it says that, that he intercepts, interacts with Joshua, and, and, and Joshua says, I hear the sound of, 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 of war. And Moses, in verse 18, says, no, 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 it's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear, celebrating. And Moses goes down, and what does he do when he goes down the mountain? As the priest as the priest, as the intercessor, he brought the people's names to God. Now, as the prophet, he brings God to the people. He brings the holiness of God to the people. And he confronts them in their sin. He brings God's holiness, God's presence into the midst of a people celebrating their sin. In one verse earlier, it says that they, they played. In this verse, it says they're singing in another verse, it's down below this, Moses is going to see them dancing around their idols. They are glorying in their sin. They're celebrating their sin. And Moses comes bringing the holiness of God. Look at the attitude and the words of Moses. Verse 11, it was the Lord's wrath that burned. And now in verse 19, and as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And look what he does. He throws the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. That's an important phrase. That's a significant phrase. This is not some temper tantrum where Moses is just angry and throws something against the wall. That's not what Moses is doing here. Moses is making a strategic and declarative act. He is making a statement by this action. Where does he do this? At the foot of the mountain. Do you remember back in Exodus 19? Back in Exodus chapter 24, Moses is told, God says, you, you can come up, but the people must stay at the foot of the mountain. If they cross the line, they will die. There's a holiness that God represents, and there's a sinfulness among the people. They cannot come up. They must stay at the foot of the mountain. Do you remember after that Moses receives the Ten Commandments, he comes down in chapter 24, down the mountain, to the foot of the mountain, and it, in chapter 24, verse 2 and 3, that's where the people say, we will do everything that God commands at the foot of the mountain. And on that, in that scene, Moses builds an altar with 12 pillars representing the leaders of Israel, representing all the people, representing their commitment, their confession at the foot of the mountain. And now Moses has returned to the very place where God told the people to stay, where, God, where they were supposed to worship, where, where an altar was built, where the confession was made, and there God throws down the tablets. I mean, Moses throws down the tablets and breaks them. And what is Moses saying? You've broken your covenant. You've broken your word. 
you have sinned and you have broken relationship with God. They stand condemned. Remember, to enter into a covenant is a promise. And it's a bloody affair. If, if you entered into a covenant, usually something was cut. Animals were cut. And they were, the two halves of the animal were put on two sides of a trough. And the blood would bleed in. And, and two parties would walk through the trough. And in essence saying, you can do to me what we've done to these animals if I break my end of the deal. In other words, Mo- Moses is saying, you've broken your part of the, the end of the deal. You stand condemned. You deserve to die. Your blood should be shed. Moses is announcing the holiness and the authority of God. But he also goes further than that. In verse 20, he takes the calf that they'd made and he burns it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. What does that mean? What's he doing? He's showing them the worthlessness of their idols. He grinds up their idols into fine powder and he tosses it on the water that they will drink such that they will drink it and it will process through them out of their bodies. Isaiah 44.20 says an idol is a lie in our right hand. Ecclesiastes says it's an empty vapor, it's like a mist. Moses is saying your idol is like excrement. That's the worth of your idols. That's the worth of what you're worshiping apart from God. Ouch. This is a prophet proclaiming the holiness of God. Many times we love to talk about the grace of God. Absolutely we love to talk about it. We desperately need it. But sometimes that's to to turn a blind eye to God's holiness. And Moses will not allow that. He's proclaiming the holiness of God. Jesus is our true and better prophet. Jesus is the one who came down the mountain, if you will, descending into the the valley of our sinful lives. And what's one of the first things he proclaims? In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, he says, The kingdom of God has arrived. To announce the kingdom of God is to announce the, the king has come. To announce the holiness of God, the presence of God, the rule and the reign of God. And what's the very first word that Jesus says after that? Repent. Sometimes we miss that. Sometimes we, talk, we, we see this God in the Old Testament as an angry God and the God of the New Testament as this love and happy, only grace God, we see Jesus and we don't, we don't see him turning over tables. We don't hear him in John chapter 3 verse 18 saying that the, the world stands condemned already. That anyone who does not believe in the Son of God, Jesus, will be punished. We miss the holiness of God. And what does Jesus announce? The holiness of God is in your midst. The holiness of God has come. Repent. To say repent means there's something to repent of. It's to say that you are a sinful people. That we are a sinful people. That there is sin in our midst. That there's sin in our lives that we must turn from. And we must bow before the King. We can't miss that part of the message. Because if we miss that part of the message, then the glory of what Jesus says after that is lost. Because Jesus says, 
In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. And then he goes on to say something beautiful. And believe the gospel. Believe the good news. What's the good news? It's not good news without repent, without the holiness of God. The good news is, is that you and I who deserve judgment, who deserve punishment, who deserve the wrath of God, instead are offered grace in Jesus are offered hope and rescue while we were yet sinners, before we cleaned our lives up. It's beautiful what Jesus is proclaiming there. He entered into the sinful world. We stand condemned already. We're the ones dancing around our idols, singing and glorying to them. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And yet, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is the good news of the gospel. We are just like Israel. We are sinful and we are desperately in need of a priest, a mediator, an intercessor. And guess what we get? We get Jesus. And that leads us to our third point, last point. Moses, our strong and sacrificial king. Moses comes as a priest interceding and mediating. Moses comes as a prophet confronting sin. But he turns and he goes back up the mountain. He goes back up the mountain. He comes as this strong and sacrificial leader. In the next section of text, in verse 21, what we see is there's this intentional contrast between Aaron, the failed priest, and Moses, the true priest of Israel. There's this contrast. First, we see Aaron's weak leadership. We see Moses confront that. His weak authority, his weak Rule with the people. Verse 21, he says, What did these people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? Why didn't you resist, Aaron? Why didn't you stand boldly in the gap? Aaron, you were on the mountain with me when I received those commandments and I brought them down. You met me in the middle. You, you know these commandments. Aaron, what happened? Why? Why did you cave? Why did you, why did you not resist? You could have asked. Verse 25, Moses says, they broke free. Why? Because Aaron let them break free. He didn't lead. He didn't stand on the holiness of God. He didn't stand on the truth of God's commandments that God had given him. And contrast that to Moses in verse 26. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. In other words, choose this day whom you will serve. Who is on the Lord's side? He stands boldly and proclaims the truth, the holiness of God, and he demands people to choose. To submit to the holiness of God. And all the sons of Levi gathered and charged, and he charged them to put their swords on and, he, and to go and kill their brothers and neighbors, and about 3,000 fell. It's not clear why these 3,000, were these the unrepentant, were these the kind that just persisted in sin, were reluctant to relent and repent of their sins. We read this text and we say, I don't like that. I don't really like seeing this, 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 these people kill 3,000 people. The question that we're put to in this text is, do you dislike sin more? What we're seeing is the holiness of God on display. One commentator puts it this way, this story reveals the deadly seriousness of sin Temptation presents sin as attractive and harmless, but in reality, sin looks like 3,000 rotting corpses. Death is sin made visible. 
holiness matters. So Aaron does not stand up for the holiness of God. There's weak leadership. There's also a weak confession. There's this confession in, in verse 2, all the way back in verse 2 and 4, they, they ask for a God, and, and, and Aaron says, give me your gold, and he fashions it. He meticulously crafts it. Meticulously. Which is why Moses crushed it to the ground. He meticulously destroyed it. But he meticulously crafts it. And then look at his confession, verse 22. Let not the ang- He's talking to Moses. Let not the anger of the Lord burn hot. This is not that big a deal, Moses. And look what he does. You know these people. They're set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods and we shall go before us. And as for, hey, Moses, you didn't come down. We didn't know where you were. It's your fault also, Moses. So I said to them, let any of the... Any of you who have gold, take it off. So they gave it to me, and I just threw it in the fire, and out popped this calf. I don't know how it happened. Ever experienced a confession like that? That's not confession. That's Adam 2.0. That's a dodge, if you've ever seen one. I didn't, I don't know. I just, it wasn't my fault. You know that they're sinful. And Moses, where were you at? And I threw in the fire, and it came out. I don't know. The right answer is, I am a sinner. I have sinned against a holy God and I repent. I confess. Please forgive me. That's the right answer. But that's not the answer you get in Aaron. And and Moses makes that point. He says you have sinned a great sin. He says that a couple of times. So we see Aaron's weak leadership, Aaron's uh, uh, Aaron's weak confession, and then Aaron's weak intercession. Aaron doesn't confront their sin. Aaron certainly did not implore God. He didn't go before God and ask God to to correct this people, rebuke this people, or even to be gracious to this people. And he 100% did not go before God and offer himself up as a substitute. But Moses did. Where Aaron failed, Moses succeeds. Verse 32, but now, Moses back before the presence of God, but now if you will forgive their sin, but if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out from your book that you have written. Remember back in in, in Deuteronomy 9.14, the beginning of the story, God says, let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. And Moses says, no. Please forgive them, and if you will not, please blot me out. Accept me as their substitute. Accept me as their sacrifice. Accept me in their stead. Why are we given this scene with this people? Why are we given this scene with Moses? Why are we given this cl- contrast between Aaron and in Moses, It clearly shows us that sin still remains. That though they've been rescued out of Egypt, Egypt still remains in the people. There's still sin. But more importantly, we're seeing, we're being shown that the people desperately need one to intercede for them. One to mediate the presence of God. One to act as a priest, as, as a prophet, as a king. And what do they get in Aaron? They do not get that. But in Moses, they do. They get a substitute. All eyes are on Moses in this text. All eyes are on his reaction to sin. All eyes are on his offer of substitution. The people are sinful and they desperately need a mediator to intercede on their behalf. Psalm 106 verse 23 says exactly that. That God received Moses, his chosen one, who stood in the breach between him and 
the people. But what's interesting is that Moses offers himself as a substitute, but his offer is not accepted. Verse 32, he offers, please blot me out. But verse 33, God says, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Moses is a prophet, priest, and king, but his offer is not sufficient. His atonement is not sufficient. His substitute is not sufficient. Why? Because Moses is only a picture. Because Jesus is the true and better prophet. Because Jesus is the true and better substitute. This is exactly what Moses says in Deuteronomy 18.15, that there is one to come who is better than me, and you must listen to him. When you get to the New Testament, you hear the writers of the New Testament over and over again saying, Jesus is the prophet. Listen to him. You hear God even say that at his baptism and his transfiguration. He is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to what? Listen to his intercession on your behalf. Listen to his confrontation of your sin. And listen to the offer of grace. His substitutionary life on your behalf. Repent and cling to Him. Repent and cling to Him. He's the true and better priest. What's interesting is in Acts chapter 3, in in Peter's second great proclamation, great preaching, great teaching that he proclaims, he says to the people in verse 14 and 15, You denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murder to be granted to you. You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And then he says these amazing words in verse 18 and 19 that that connect directly to our text. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Do you hear it, church? God said, I will blot out this people. Moses says, no, please blot me out. God says, I will not accept your substitution. I will blot out anyone who has sinned against me. We all stand before a holy God and should be blotted out. But there is one who has come to substitute himself on our behalf. Our king, our prophet, our priest, Jesus Christ. And why did he die? So that you and I, our sins could be blotted out forever. Why did he descend from the mountain of God to the sinful valley of our lives? So that he could go up on the cross to blot out our sins, to nail them to the cross permanently and forever so that you and I who stand condemned and judged and should die, we are let free to come down from our judgment and walk free this is Christ this is our Savior this is the gospel do you have the assurance of Jesus speaking your name into the ear of God right now Do you have the absolute rock-solid confidence that your sins though they should be punished were punished in Jesus And therefore, you're free and condemned no more. Have you clung to the strong and sacrificial king who died on your behalf? If so, 
then the Bible tells us that we are now like Moses. We are made royal priests. We now get the privilege and the joy of going before the throne of God and pleading on behalf of others. We now get the, the joy and the privilege of proclaim, proclaiming the truth and the love of Jesus to the world. We now get to be sacrificial servant leaders like our king. Is this true of you? Is this your hope? Have you clung to Jesus? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. So much in this text. So much richness, goodness, greatness, and grace visible on display. May we cling to our true and better prophet, true and better priest, true and better king, Jesus, to the one who died on our behalf, who substituted himself, who went before you and you received, who pleads now our names. Lord, for those who have received that, may they walk in the confident assurance, bold assurance, as the scriptures tell us, that they can enter into the presence of God Almighty because of the blood of Jesus. Now we can bring our pleas, our cries directly to you because of Jesus. Thank you that we have a great advocate who pleads our name, our needs into your ear. Thank you for that we have the second advocate who pleads into our ears his great work. May we hear his great work this morning through the, the words of the Holy Spirit and your word. And may we repent of our sins. And may we now be royal priests proclaiming the goodness and the grace of God in Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.